In the 1980s, John Lehman wrote a poem entitled Present Tense, and he writes this. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool and dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, and it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. Now just from hearing the snickering in the room, I think you get the poem. And it sounds all too familiar to us, doesn't it? We're prone to focus on what we lack rather than what we have. We become easily unfazed by all that God has provided and thoroughly interested in what our neighbor has that we wish that we had. Our desire for what we think is missing actually blinds us to see just how much we truly possess. The problem is not an external one, but internal. It's the work of a heart that is covetous, desirous of what someone else has that you just can't seem to obtain. And this specific poem actually pinpoints the essence of the 10th commandment. In our heart of hearts stems a big, big problem. We're all too easily discontent. We are all too easily discontent. Now what we'll see this morning is that God's people are not to covet, but to be content in the Lord. And the, and the glorious reality is that the Lord Jesus actually fulfills the 10th commandment by submitting to the will of God perfectly, joyfully becoming poor so that we might become rich. And so the people of God are enabled and empowered to slay covetousness and find lasting contentment in Christ. And so with that said, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. And if you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs in front of you, you can find our passage on page 61. And while you turn there, feel free to look at your outline, and you'll notice that we have three main points this morning. Number one, the commandment given. Number two, the commandment fulfilled. And number three, the commandment applied. And so first, number one, the commandment Given, follow along as I read in Exodus 20, verse 17. It says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now in Exodus 20, God's law is instituted with a purpose that his people would be sanctified, that they would be made holy. 
And as Exodus 19.5 reminds us, in order for the purpose that they would be his treasured possession. So God here instructs us on how his people are to live. We've seen that already throughout the course of the Ten Commandments, right? We've seen that Israel's not to worship false gods. We've seen that they're not to murder as they experienced during their time in Egypt. And now as we come to the Tenth Command, God says they are not to covet. They're not to desire another man's possessions, right? I mean, just think back. You may remember in the wilderness, we see the people of God coveting Egypt, the place in which they were enslaved to. Just think back to Exodus 16, verse 3. The people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, because you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Or Numbers 14.4, And they, the people of Israel, said to one another, talking amongst themselves, Let us choose a leader and go where? Go back to Egypt. Go back to the land of slavery. They instinctively desire what they had in Egypt. Even though it isn't reality, you just hear it in their cry. If only we were in Egypt, then we'd be satisfied. They never experience freedom from starvation. But in the wilderness, they begin to covet God's enemy rather than God himself. So it's clear. God instructs the Israelites to obey him so that they would know him and they would show themselves to be truly his prized possession. And so A, the context of the command, leads us now to look at B, the content of the command, where we see that God's passion for his people is to walk in contentment rather than covetousness. And so in order to understand exactly what this command is speaking of, we must define and then examine covetousness. So just listen with me to verse 17 again. It says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now just look at all the prohibitions we have in this one verse, right? Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Not the servant, not the house, not ox, not don- no donkeys. And if there's anything that you may covet that isn't listed here, God's people must realize you are not to covet it. Anything, he says, that is your neighbor's, you must not covet. So it isn't a matter of what you covet here, Right? whether it be the wife, the house, the livestock, whatever it is. No, the problem is that you covet at all. But what is covetousness? Well, covetousness is desiring something or someone so much that you lose your contentment in God. I'll say it again. Covetousness is desiring something or someone so much that you lose your contentment in God. And that word desire is significant to our understanding here this morning because this isn't a command against outward actions like we've seen with stealing or murder or bearing false witness. No, it's a sin internally. It's a sin that's internal rather than external against your neighbor. It's a heart issue. In fact, to go a bit deeper in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says this in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What's earthly in you? Well, look what he says, or listen to what he says. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, 
and covetousness, notice, which is idolatry. And so there's a deep connection here between covetousness and idolatry. The contentment that hearts should find in God is overthrown by the treasuring of something else. Now just think with me here about the Ten Commandments that we have been deep diving in. The first and the tenth commands are essentially equivalent commands to one another in the sense that both commands display a heart that's divided between two masters. Commandment one says, you shall have no other gods before me, which links itself to the heart in command 10 that craves the creature rather than the creator, rather than God himself. And so when we treasure created things, we are essentially molding our unlawful desires into little gods to satisfy our hearts. It it clamors the foolish remark, I couldn't possibly live without this person, without this place, without this thing. And so to be clear, the issue is not that we have desires but that we desire the wrong things or even desire good things in greater capacity than we do God. We, we have unlawful desires that overthrow our contentment in what God has provided and ultimately it overthrows our contentment in Him. Period. So it's helpful to define what covetousness is But we need to examine how coveting manifests itself in our hearts. And Thomas Watson's really helpful with determining this. Listen to the motivations that he unpacks that are laced behind the covetous heart. He says this, when we covet, I'm sorry, we covet when our thoughts are completely taken up with the world. When we take more pains for obtaining the world than we do for heaven. When all we talk about is the world. When we set our hearts upon worldly things for the love of them and therefore are willing to pursue the world rather than heaven. When we overload ourselves with worldly affairs. And lastly, whose heart is so set upon the world that we're willing to sin to get it. You see, our mouths, our thoughts, Our actions manifest the innermost recesses of our hearts. Our ungodly desires for our neighbor's goods are displayed in our actions and our attitudes. And that's exactly what Jesus says. Right? We've heard it all along. Matthew 12, 34 says, For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. But what's the big deal? Is my heart really that big of a problem? Yes. It goes beyond just sinning in our hearts against our brother and sister, but it's a sin against a holy God. You see, when we covet, it's actually an assault on the goodness and the kindness of God. Our discontentment declares, I deserve more than I have, and God owes me my worth. We do this all the time, don't we? The inward desire for a better wife a more thoughtful husband, a bigger house, 
more brain power, better complexion, more talent, our frustrations with singleness, our desire for companionship. It even creeps itself into the walls of the church, the passionate pursuit of a better, more practical spiritual gift or a more prominent role in the church. It shows itself even in the sentences that begin with, I wish and why not? Why can't my wife be like so-and-so? Why do I have cancer when I'm a good person? Meanwhile, the guy down the street is cheating on his wife and even he gets to have a good and healthy life. The statement, I wish my kids behaved like theirs. You see, what we are prone to crave could be a multitude of things. But the question that I want us to ask is this. What do you find yourself dreaming most about? Talking most about? Wishing that you had? What wakes you up at 3 a.m.? What are you most likely to covet? Possessions, relationships, or circumstances? This morning, the million dollar question is this What does your heart desire? What does your heart desire? R. Kent Hughes rightly states, unholy desires quickly turn into deadly desires. And that's what God's law opposes. And so this morning as we look at Israel and the Old Testament failures in this regard, we're going to see that both Adam and Eve and the Israelites fail to keep the 10th commandment. They display unholy desires. They are covetous, which sadly leads to deadly desires, uprooted from reality and misguided by passion rather than rightly guided by the chief satisfier. It's a full misguided passion. And so I want us to see this. And so number two, the commandment fulfilled, A, failed by God's people. And so let's look at number one, the fall of man. So turn with me to Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three, and we're going to start in verse one. And as you're turning there, you may recall that Genesis 1.26 has told us already that God created man and woman in the image and likeness of God. And so they've been purposed and positioned in the garden on the earth to reflect his glory and to make him known. And so there's no sin. They live in peace and harmony with God, right? The cool of the day. But look at Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, pause here for a moment. What's the serpent, Satan, doing here? Well, he looks to lure Eve into doubt. He's calling into question God's goodness, his provision, and his power, isn't he? Yes, yeah, so the serpent depicts God as this wicked, jealous God. One who forbids his people from actually enjoying all the good things that he has created. So that, here's the purpose, that man and woman remain in an inferior state to God. Keep your place in position. Like he is not good to you. But these are lies, aren't they? These are lies from the evil one. Just look with me at verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, 
you will surely not die. Why not? Don't miss it. Because God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. You catch what happens here? In the narrative, Eve is carried away from reality. Amid complete bliss and pleasures abounding, there's this one tree that seems to stand in the way of true happiness and true satisfaction. Right? Adam and Eve have already been made in the image of God, but that's not enough anymore. Eve doesn't want to be just a reflector of God's glory. No, she declares with her eyes and her heart, I want to be equal with God. I want us to notice here something fascinating. The word desired here, used in verse 6, is the same root word used for coveting found in Exodus 20, verse 17. And so God said that this one tree was forbidden. She could have picked from any tree, enjoy any tree in the entirety of the garden, but no, she says, I covet that tree. I want the wisdom that God refuses to give me. I deserve that fruit. How come I can't have it? Doesn't God want me happy, healthy, and wise? You see, the eyes of Eve's heart were enlarged by an ungodly craving for more. She believed God was stiffing her and her husband of a greater provision. And as a result... Adam and Eve willingly placed themselves in direct opposition to the very words of God. Willing opposition. John Calvin helpfully articulates the deplorable nature of this situation. He says this, Unbelief has opened the door to unlawful ambition, but unlawful ambition has proved the parent of rebellion to the end that men having cast aside the fear of God that they would throw off what God's yoke so what he's saying is they've declared independence from the Lord their maker once again unholy desires quickly turn into deadly desires And so we see the inner workings of a covetous heart in the fall of humanity. And their rebellion leads to spiritual death. And at the heart of man's spiritual death comes a redundant theme of unbelief and God's goodness and power which is flowing from their sinful hearts. And that's not only seen at the fall, but that's also what we see among the nation of Israel. And so B, the Israelites plea. Now you may remember from your Bible reading 1 Samuel 8, and so Samuel, who's this great prophet and judge, he's, he's getting old in his years, he is dying, and so he has raised up his sons to be the new judges of Israel. That's Joel and Abijah. But they aren't righteous like Samuel. They are not righteous leaders. And so the elders of Israel, they get together, they go and they confront Samuel with one demand. We want a king. We want a king. And so 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 7, I just want you to listen to this language. 
It says this, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like who? Like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. Because they have not rejected you. But they have rejected me from being king over them. So I want you to just notice some of the language here. The leaders of of the nation. This is Israel. They desire to be ruled by a king. And this king... It says, is one that they've seen among the nations. We want a king like what we see amongst those who beat us up and threaten us day in and day out. And so right now we may be quick to think as we hear from 1 Samuel, what's so bad about Israel's request? Why is Samuel all bent out of shape for for them desiring this king? Well, verse 7 tells us that in their desire for a king, as seen among the nations, they are rejecting God to be their king. You have the king of the universe who works and wills for their good and protection, and they say, I want what they've got. (coughs) They trade the king of all creation for one like all of the nations. They don't believe that God's enough. They believe that he can't possibly supply them with a reign that ends in their betterment. And so the nation of Israel fails to keep the 10th commandment. They, they covet not what their brothers and sisters have, but what pagan nations have. They crave worldly kings rather than the king of glory. And so what happens? God gives them up to their foolish desires. So Samuel let them have it. And they have ungodly, unruly kings for hundreds of years. Unholy desires quickly turn into deadly desires. And we have the same problem. Our hearts are prone to covet rather than contentment. We may not say it out loud, but out of the overflow of our hearts, we declare God is not for my good. He's not. I mean, we may be able to withhold from telling a few lies or murdering someone, but the 10th commandment cuts to the quick of our hearts and displays exactly what we saw in commandment number one. Our hearts are perpetual idol factories. And it displays the very real fact. Even in number 10, we cannot keep God's law in and of ourselves. We fail. We fail to keep God's law. We worship the creature rather than the creator. We're prone to believe that the creature can satisfy where God the creator seems to lack. But is that true? No. No, God does not lack. But these are the falsehoods wrapped up at the base of our depraved hearts. And so we need to look outside of ourselves, don't we? Once again, even in number 10, it declares we need rescuing. We need a rescuer outside of ourselves to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so where we fail to keep God's commands, the Lord Jesus actively obeys every bit of the law of God in our stead. 
So this morning, we must look to the Lord Jesus, the one who is both the lawgiver and the law keeper. He is perfect in all his ways and is faithful to God's law where we could never be. And so number one, fulfilled in his life. So turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verse 27. And what I want us to see is that Jesus truly fulfills the 10th commandment in his life. He is the sinless son of God. He does not covet and is actively and continuously faithful to the father. And he is truly content in his circumstances with one desire, that God would be glorified. So just look with me at John chapter 12, starting in verse 27. Jesus says this to his disciples and some Greeks at a feast. He says, Now is my soul troubled? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So according to the text here, Jesus' soul is troubled. Why? Why would he say that? Well, just look at verses 12 through 16. It actually shows us that Jesus has just entered the city of Jerusalem along with his disciples, right? The triumphant entry. He's in the final week of his ministry, and he's sharing his impending death, staring his impending death in the face. And so he's speaking of the hour of his crucifixion. But notice what Jesus then says. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? So he's declaring, right? He's not actually having the question. No, he's making quite the declaration. What he's really saying here is, don't save me, Father. Don't save me. He doesn't look for rescue in the moments of despair here. But what does he ask for instead? Look at the latter part of verse 27. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour, the hour of death and crucifixion. One purpose. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. So where the Lord Jesus had every reason in the entire world to desire a different outcome, where he could have most certainly said, no, save me, Father, I don't want to go through this, I don't want this. No, he obediently endures. So rather than pursuing ungodly desires, flows godly contentment in his situation, in his purpose, in God's plan, that the Father would be magnified even in his hour of persecution and death. This is the purpose for which he came. He's been sent by God for this very reason, and he joyfully obeys the Lord. Without sin, without coveting, he's content with God's will. There's no moment of, man, I really wish that I could just be Peter right now. It would be a lot easier. No, this is the reason he came. And he's faithfully content with that very mission. This is perfect obedience. Joyful obedience to the Father's will. And so what we see is that the creator, the sustainer, and the goal of all of creation, Jesus, is completely content. Perfectly content. With God's will. Even when it meant that the Father would crush him on the cross to rescue enemies. 
We see Christ's contentment not only in his life as he awaits the hour, but we see it specifically within the hour itself. Number two, in his death. So I want us to see it. And so let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Second Corinthians chapter 8, starting and ending in verse 9. Paul writes this. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now look at the grace of God on display. According to Paul, what does it look like? That though Jesus was rich, he was rich. The one who possessed more riches than could ever we could ever fully comprehend. The one who lived in perfect unity and community amongst the Trinity in heavenly places. Right? Fullness of joy in and of himself. No lack, no wanting, no sinful craving, only bliss and glory. Right? That's, that's rich. That is truly rich. But notice then what Paul says. Yet, yet for your sake... He became poor. He became poor. He came to earth in the likeness of mere men, lived a perfect life, fully God and fully man, died a horrific death as a substitute for sinners, bearing the full wrath of God in our place. That is the essence of true poverty. The depth of being poor. Look at verse 9 again. So that. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Rich in Christ. Here's the grace of God on display, according to Paul. He, Jesus, became poor for the sinner. That the sinner, the impoverished beggar, the one who didn't have a chance, would enjoy the wealth of God. Those who were spiritually poor are made partakers in the riches of Christ for all of eternity. And guess what? Oh, he was gloriously content in and through it all. There's not a shadow of turning with thee. Willingly became poor for us. And then empowers and enables his people. He obliterates our ungodly desires that we, by faith, may truly have desires for him. We're made rich in Christ. Unfathomable, unmeasurable grace. And so in his dying, the Lord Jesus faithfully fulfills the 10th commandment. He does for sinners what we could never do for ourselves. So then sinners are robed in the righteous garments of Christ's righteousness as heirs reigning with him. Promised no longer to be beggars punished forever, but to be heirs of the throne of God, to reign in the wealth and riches of Christ's own person. This is what he has accomplished. Willingly, obediently, joyfully, no coveting, but only contentment in God's 
perfect plan. Now this morning, if you do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you do not treasure him, then I'm here to tell you this morning that you could be no poorer than you are right now. In fact, the Bible says that you are dead and your trespasses and sins are in desperate need of rescue. But what I'm also here to tell you this morning is that there is great hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory. The rescuer has come. And so this morning I plead with you to see the beauty of God. That you would know that Christ came down to earth. He lived a perfect sinless life, keeping all the commands of God in the place of the poor, the broken, the dead, and the needy. He died the death that sinners deserve to die. And then he rose from the grave three days later as the victor over death forever. And so at this very moment, the King of glory bids you to come, to know him, to treasure him as Lord, to turn from your sin and follow the Lord Jesus for all your days that you might be reconciled to God forever. The one who was rich became poor that the poor might be made rich in him forever. And so in Christ's life and death, we see that he fulfills the 10th commandment. He truly does. And through his work, he now gives us his spirit, which enables and empowers us to walk in godliness, to actually put off the desires, wicked desires of our hearts, and truly be content in him, to have desires for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so those who desire to be holy, blameless in his sight, are those who implant, write, and realize the gospel in their souls. And so because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, we now by faith, slay covetousness, and pursue contentment in Christ. Now that sounds great, but what on earth does it actually look like for the Christian to truly put off covetousness and to walk in contentment? But we must fight by faith. And so I think there are three points that are helpful for us this morning. Points of application to help us recall in the fight against covetousness. And so here they are. Number one, pray with God's word. Number two, trust a particular promise of God. And number three, pursue contentment in Christ. And so A, pray with God's word. We need to pray. And pray biblically that we might put to death the roots of covetousness in our hearts and walk radically different from the world that we live in. And so what we do is we open up God's word and we allow the truths of the Bible to shape our prayers to the Lord himself. Verses like Psalm 119, 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not the selfish gain. Psalm 42, 1 through 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. And so praying prayers soaked in the scriptures like these in order that the Lord might incline us to uproot our covetous desires. That we would have hearts that are stirred to yearn, not for selfish gain, not for more of my brother and sister's goods, but a yearning for Christ that leads to contentment in what God provides. That our souls would pant for nothing else but for him. 
and praying that God would give us a craving for the Lord Jesus that would uproot and then replace our sinful desires for a new and improved husband, car, bank account, or great applause from others. We don't want ungodly desires, but we can, by faith, uproot those ungodly desires and and implant, oh, a good godly desire for him alone. And so the Christian slays their sin of covetousness in a fight of faith, right? Clinging to God's word, as we've seen, to reconfigure, reshape our minds and hearts through prayer. But secondly, we trust a particular promise of God. And so in addition to praying with God's word, we must grab a hold of specific promises in God's word to help in the fight against coveting. A passage like 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, Paul says to Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Why? Because we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Do you hear it here? Godliness looks like something. It doesn't look like covenant, but it looks like the very antidote of it. That we would rest content in God. And so when the lion of covetousness shows his deadly face, we show him the knife. We show 1 Timothy 6.6. There is great gain in godliness with contentment. We need to preach to our souls the reality that those who are in Christ, those who have been saved, those who have been made rich, those who have the Spirit of God working in them are those who strive by grace for godliness with contentment. Why? Because we know that there is great gain for the Christian. Great gain in contentment. It's a good thing. It's a holy endeavor. And not only that, but I'd like to also share with you another promise that's been the great dagger of covetousness in my own heart. Psalm 84, 11. It says this, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And so at the very foundation of coveting comes the belief that God is withholding something good from you. That, that's, that's what happens, right? It's, it's the lie that says you're missing out and that he's not actually good. Or the sad thought that says this desire that I have for ungodly things, it's just too strong. I can't take a grip of it and get it out of there in place of God. So how can I possibly let go of this ungodly desire? We need to trust the promises of God. He withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. Nothing. He's working for your holiness and happiness in him. And so we cannot forget this this morning. God is not stingy in his giving. All that is good you have. If you don't have it, then guess what? It isn't for your good. It is not for your good. Which then means that your unique and rebunctious children are for your good. Your spouse, for your good. Unemployment, your junk car, cancer, your life group, your spiritual gifts, your hospital stays are all for your good. They come from his good hand. Every bit of it comes from his hand. He is sovereign. He is mighty. He is holy. And oh, he is so good to those who walk uprightly.
And so with all this said, slaying covetousness must include prayer in the promises of God. That's how we fight. And then in its place, we must look at the active pursuit of contentment in Christ. And so let's be clear. I'm not saying anything new. Covetousness is a sneaky, sneaky sin. It's used by the enemy to stir the lie in our hearts that God's unable to satisfy us. That surely he can't be our all. Right? That other things are truly better than Jesus. But that's not true. That's not what the Bible says. No, Jesus is truly better than the ungodly desires that we may possess. But do we believe this? Do we actually believe that God is enough? Right? We're not just talking about settling for what we have. Or the fear that we're missing out on something greater. No, it's knowing that if you have him, oh, you have all you ever need. That's contentment. But that's great to hear. Right? Amen and amen. But what does it look like? How do I truly pursue contentment in Christ now? I think our knowledge of who God is and what he has done actually informs our hearts that we would obey. That we would pursue contentment in him. That we would no longer covet, but that we would be content. For instance, in Psalm 73, we have a wonderful model of what that looks like. Right? Asaph, the writer of the psalm, he's frustrated with God. Why? Because evil men are getting off scot-free. Meanwhile, Asaph is suffering. And he's angry about it. But then Asaph learns the secret of being contentment, doesn't he? In fact, I think he's helpful in displaying to us how we are to learn how to pursue contentment. Just listen to verses 16 through 17. It says, but when I thought how to understand this, right, how evil men are getting off, it seemed to me a wearisome task until what? Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. So where did he go? He went to the sanctuary of God. In the presence of God, he learns the truth of who the Lord is and what he has planned, what he has promised. He sees the faithfulness of God, his goodness, his trustworthiness, his holiness. He sees the guidance of his good shepherd in his life, and he remembers the power and glory of God. And in light of what he has heard and seen in the sanctuary of God, what does he declare? Right? His knowledge informs his heart. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He closes. The nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is my good. And so his people fight. We fight by faith, with contentment, that we would believe in the midst of a world that says that God's not enough, we boldly proclaim, I desire nothing but Him. And that's exactly what Paul declares in Philippians 4, 11-13. He learns the same secret that Asaph did. And so I want you to turn with me to Philippians 4. I think we need to see the secret. Philippians 4, 11-13. 
Paul writes this to the church in Philippi. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so Paul is abundantly clear, right? That no matter what, whether he experiences hardship, poverty, or abundance, he's content. In fact, Paul says in verse 12 that he has learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. How? What is the secret? What are you getting at, Paul? It's contentment, right? Verse 11 says that he has learned in whatever situation that he is to be content, which gives us this morning such hope, doesn't it? I think there are two ways that this is extremely helpful to us as we are looking to pursue contentment rather than covetousness. Number one, Paul is clear. I'm sorry, contentment is possible for the Christian. You can learn it and continue to learn it for all your days, right? He learned the secret of contentment. And number two, that this contentment thing, it's not manufactured in you. No, contentment is rooted in the Lord Jesus. Verse 13, Paul can do all things through who? Through Christ who strengthens me. Strengthened through Christ no matter what circumstance comes. So those who are content in Christ can declare that even if everything is taken from you, we can declare joyfully that it is all gain. It is all gain. How? Because we have a treasure that kings and queens could only dream of. You have the Lord Jesus Christ, who is poured out. The one who was rich became poor for your sake, that you might be rich in him. And so, brothers and sisters, may we be a people who yearn for the Lord Jesus that we would hate the covetous desires that wage war in our hearts, that we would contemplate the promises of God, that we would soak in the gospel, that our hearts and minds would be overwhelmed and utterly consumed by the majesty of our risen Savior, that we might declare that whatever may come, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul, because Christ is our all. Let's pray. Father, may we declare this morning, it is well with our souls because Christ is our all. Lord, we pray that we would be those that consider all things as but loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. God, we pray that we'd find our greatest joy and satisfaction in nothing else but in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, you are worthy of our affection. And so God, we pray that we would fight, fight with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would put off covetousness and that we would pursue actively and joyfully contentment in the Lord Jesus Christ, our living water, our daily bread. God, we pray that you would strengthen us and that you would call to mind the glory of the gospel. We pray that you would be constantly conforming us into the image of your good and perfect son, the Lord Jesus. And it's in his 
precious name we pray. Amen.